You know, at the end of my Whitney Webb podcast that I did this weekend, one of the things that I said was that she and George Gammon were two of the smartest people that I like talking to about these issues because I think they, and especially when it comes to macro, George Gammon is a guy I like talking to because he really helps shed perspective on things that I think uh, my listeners benefit from. And certainly, personally, I benefit from them, which is why I like to keep uh, both of them on the hook to do episodes once in a while. And I got to chatting with George Gammon this weekend about a couple of things and just said, hey, you know what, man, it's time to do a podcast. Uh, So here we are a couple days after the Whitney Webb podcast. By the way, thanks for all the love you guys have shown on that podcast. Uh, I've been getting a lot of great positive feedback. I appreciate you guys listening and to everybody that's checked in on Patreon, Patreon, whatever the fuck it's called. In my continuing series called We're Gonna Figure It All Out One Way or Another, I got Mr. George Gammon on the line with me today. First and foremost, before we get started, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. You guys keep me in business Business also. I appreciate you guys hitting me up on PayPal, and uh, I got my Bitcoin shit up there too. For those of you that are uh, Bitcoin freaks and you want to check in on there, even though I'm not sold yet, some of you guys still show me love and I appreciate that. Most of you guys know I'm a gold and silver bug. I want to shout out first and foremost my kind friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion is the only place that I buy my gold and silver. These guys have been in business for just about a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. I use them because they turn my orders around quickly. They ship, usually they ship out whatever I order on the same day, according to the emails they send me at least. They have a great inventory. And they're nice people to work with. I enjoy speaking to them, doing business with them. When they started to support the podcast, they said, we are going to dedicate somebody for QTR podcast listeners exclusively. That is the lovely Kathy over at JM Bullion. If you want to order gold and silver bullion, maybe you've never done it before, you want a personalized touch, you can always do it from the website, jmbullion.com. Or you can email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. Tell her the QTR podcast sent you. You get free shipping on orders over $199. Ask Kathy for a discount, for a hookup. She'll get you taken care of. Just tell her that I sent you. And show some love to my friends over at JM Bullion. And it really is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my buddy Sang Lucci over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. A product of Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. These guys have been tracking unusual activity in the options market for a decade now also. These guys were on the scene when I joined FinTwit in 2012, which shit, it's almost been it's almost been a decade now. These guys were already on the scene tracking unusual options activity and they were the first people to do it. They were doing it before tracking unusual options activity was a thing. It was a strategy that worked well for them. They developed the Steam Room, which is a beautiful piece of software they have where you can join up, you can watch what they are watching, you can see the steam come in on the tape, they will show you where the money is going in the options market, and then that information can be very lucrative. Oftentimes it predicts moves in in equities, Um, all depends on how you use it. But the steam room can be one of those pieces of software that pays for itself very quickly if you are a uh, good trader, if you're paying attention, and, and if you're an active trader and that's something that interests you, Um, certainly it is, as far as my experience is concerned, the best, um, best piece of software for looking at unusual activity coming into the markets that I've seen. It's aesthetically nice to use too. 
Um, Lucci and Wall Street Jesus really were the OGs of doing that, and they have been updating this piece of software and the Steam Room for a decade now. I still think they're best in the business, and I'm not just saying that because he's my friend. Honest guy to do business with. All of his links are in my podcast description as well, so you could check them or JM Bullion out in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my kind friends over at the Trader's Path Day Trading Community, which is a great service with investor education and a great community and daily watch lists for day traders. Just a good group of people to surround yourself with. Get in touch with Pete Hedges over there or Sang Lucci or JM Bullion. Tell them I sent you. They'll make sure you get taken care of. I want to take a second too and recognize some uh, recent patrons like my friend Camila Saul. Thank you so much for your recent patron, Greg Brophy and Ted Renner. Uh, Salvatore, I appreciate you, brother. Alex Glazer, thanks for signing up, my man. I appreciate that. Igor K and Joseph and William Skews, thank you, my friend. Colin Santucci, Scott Felthensaw, Felson, hey, Scott, whatever your name is. I appreciate you and some people that have been patrons of mine for a little while now. I don't want to uh, want to shout them out too, like Thomas Nunn and Ryan Otis, thank you. Matt Tackett, Simon Chris Oriel, I appreciate you, my friend, and uh, also my friend Ma Barker, Sean Whelan, Sean Teveld. How about my friends at Corvus Gold, Russ Valenti, Jay Mintzmeyer, Nicholas Parks, Chris Bede. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast uh, and my friends over at Traders for a Cause. I appreciate your continued support as well. This podcast is not investing advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, generally don't have much of an idea as to what I'm doing. This is just open-minded discussion for the purpose of dumping my diary of the mouth into the public discourse. We're just trying to figure it all out together here. I am not endorsing buying, selling anything, or doing anything. Nobody move. Nobody touch anything. I don't want to hear about your stock wins. I don't want to hear about your stock losses. That's why you have a therapist. I encourage you speaking to them and not emailing me. But again, I hold no licenses, no registrations. And this is not investment advice. This podcast also has a three-drink minimum alcohol preferred. All right. On the line with me today is my good buddy, George Gammon, host of the Rebel Capitalist Show on YouTube, which has like 250,000 subscribers now and beautiful-looking thumbnails, which I think are the difference. You know, somebody said to me, dude, somebody said to me, if you did thumbnails, you'd get a bigger audience. I said, I don't give a shit. But George has these great <laughs> thumbnails, and I think that's, uh, you know, and they're always like these these questions, like in big letters, world ending, you know, with like a question mark. <laughs> How do you not click on that, right? <laughs> so, but he's also, he's also just one of the smartest people that I know, and uh, in terms of honest dialogue and discourse, and, and I, I was talking to him this weekend, and I said, you know, I enjoy speaking to you because I think we both have similar interests, which is trying to figure out what's going on for the average person. So, hello, George Gammon. How are you, brother? Hey, buddy. It's fantastic to be back, and I really, really enjoy our conversations, and I think there is a lot to talk about right now, for sure. I do, too. It's been a little while since you've been on, and uh, I want to start right away by talking about the capital siege here a couple of yeah. days ago. And yeah. uh, I know you listened to my podcast with Whitney Webb a couple of days ago because you told me that you did. 
And so yep. I'd like for you to just tell me what you think, given what we already said. I don't want to repeat myself, um, but tell me uh, where you stand and what you think about what happened. Well, I think that there's a lot of emotion on both sides. And we can see this. I think this is really a macro story, in my opinion. And people get caught up on kind of pointing the finger and all these people on the far right or these people on the far left. And <clears throat> and at surface value or at face value, I think it's easy to do. But I think we have to look a little bit deeper and ask ourselves, is this really about the election? Is this really about... Um, you know, something that uh, unfortunately happened with uh, with Mr. Floyd. Uh, is it is it really about that or is it about some underlying issue that is being created by the Federal Reserve and the central planners where we've completely destroyed the underlying fundamentals of our economy? And we've turned the world and most people's lives into this predicament where they feel as though they cannot get ahead by going out and working hard. Like when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, I was born in 73, uh, just it was all your buddies. You just knew that um, if you wanted to get rich, you had to go out there and work your ass off. And we never thought that we could get rich by buying cryptocurrency. We, we never thought that we could get rich. We didn't even know what stocks were, for heaven's sakes. We didn't know what the Federalists – you don't know any of that stuff. We just thought that if you wanted to get rich, you had to go out there and work your ass off, period. And now I don't think that's really the, the, the mainstream narrative, uh, and, and rightfully so. Because the young people, I don't think, have as many opportunities. It's not making an excuse for them by any means. But I don't think they have the same type of opportunities we had. And I think that to a certain extent, uh, you know, that's the way that they can get rich is by going out there and buying uh, Bitcoin or buying gold. I don't want to pick on Bitcoin, but buying gold or, or stocks or Tesla, you know. And so we, we have this world where the haves and the have-nots are becoming, uh, there's a bigger delta, an increasing delta between the haves and the have-nots. And that's because of the central planners. And in my opinion, it's only going to get worse. And I think that what we're seeing, whether it was the other day with the, whatever you want to call them, protest riots at the Capitol, or whether it's all the looting and the riots that we had earlier uh, in 2020, I think it's it's really because of this anxiety that people have that they're losing hope in their own financial future. And you combine that with the fact that the government in a lot of places is, is basically putting people in jail in the sense that they're – whether they're doing it now or did it earlier, you know, for the majority of this past – year we've been locked up in our in our homes we can't go out anywhere we go we have to wear masks and i'm not saying from a health standpoint that's good or bad i don't want to go down that road but the bottom line is it it's not the way humans are built to operate it's not the way we're hardwired and i think that that creates a lot of animosity and it creates a lot of tension and a lot of stress so my old business partner 
brilliant guy. Whenever an employee was, you know, kind of pissed off or disgruntled or whatever, he, he would always say it's never about what it's about. Meaning that the employee might say that they're pissed off because they had to work an extra day. But really, when you sit down and talk to them, and it, it's really about the fact that they're having problems with their spouse or something like that. You know, it's never about what it's about. So I, I think it's the same thing with the, the riots and the lootings. I think it's more about the fact that the um, difference between the haves and the have-nots is increasing. The only way for people to get ahead, they feel, is to speculate and gamble. And that for locking people in their house, in their houses, and we're decreasing the amount of human contact we have daily, and that's inevitably going to have negative consequences. You know, just a, a quick story. I live in a, a high-rise condominium building, or well, I don't really, you know, this is where I've been the last couple months, kind of a temporary location here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, in a place called the Biltmore, and. There, there's a gentleman uh, that was walking by, and you know when you're in the hall, they ask that you wear a mask when you're going down to the elevator and then out to the the valet and past the the door guy. And uh, I see this guy occasionally. He lives on my floor, and you know he'll walk by, and I'll have my headphones in, listening to a podcast, and he always says hello, and I try to say hi, but you, you know you can't see because you're wearing a mask, you can't see anyone smile or not smile. Right. And, and I'm a I'm a you know, just I'm pretty much the way I am in real life on the videos. I'm, I'm always smiling, but the guy can't see it. So the other day he walked by me and he says, oh, you know, by the way, I wanted to stop you. He's like, do I do I piss you off? Like, have I done something to make you mad? Do I, because if I if I've done something, let me know, because I sincerely apologize. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm friends with everyone in the building. I'm like, no, absolutely not. Why would you say that? He's like, well, because whenever I walk by and say hello, it, it seems like you're, you know, you're, you're not really paying attention or, or you don't acknowledge that. I'm like, no, I'm acknowledging it. And I thought to myself, oh, that's right. I, I'm acknowledging him by smiling, but he can't see me smile. You see? And, and I, I know that's just kind of a, a little side story, but I think that really plays in to this tension that we're seeing all over the United States right now. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting story because I find an, a very similar issue, which is, and people that listen to me and people that know me and my friends personally know that I am a wise ass. And, you know, I don't really take too much seriously. I crack jokes all the time. I guess it's part of how I try to, I don't know, I guess it's just part of how I try to create candor, try to create relationships. With everybody, the guy sitting next to me at the bar or the woman at the checkout line that's checking out my groceries or whatever. You know, I'm pretty much in a constant uh, state of snark and, uh, you know, just just general like being a wise ass, hopefully a respectful wise ass, but a wise ass nonetheless. And I've noticed over the last, you know, year or six months, however long we've been wearing the masks, that oftentimes I'll, I'll say something and my MO is I'll say it and then I immediately smile, you know, because I want to let somebody know, hey, I'm just fucking around, you know. Right, right. But but without with the mask on, it's like, oh, well, you kind of do have to watch what you say because not only do people not see you smile, but there is this extra tension in the air. And on a, on a less uh, complex note, it just, it sucks when you go out somewhere and you're at, the supermarket and you see a pretty woman walking down the aisle 
and you don't get to see her face and she doesn't get to see yours because how do you know what you're missing? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you shoot a glance? How do you shoot a glance down the potato chip aisle to the woman that's checking out the fucking cheese doodles when you're trying to send, you know, maybe even just a nice message, like have a nice day shopping without saying something, you know? And it's just, yeah, it, the masks really, they, they really kind of throw a blanket over in-person human interaction to some degree, don't they? Yeah, I, I believe they do. And it, combining that with the fact that we're all scared to be within six feet of one another because we've just been, you know, we've had this um, hammered home by our central planners for, for so long now that, and, and some people obviously a little more concerned with this than others, but I'll be walking down the sidewalk for heaven's sakes, or I'll walk across the street to go to the gym and, you know, walking into Whole Foods and you, you can kind of sense those people that are like, ah, like somehow they don't, want to even be within your aura like, like your pig pen from charlie brown and they're trying to just <laughs> like this try to dodge your, your the, all the covid dust that's around you that you're kicking up and it, it just goes back to what we were saying and that i don't think human beings are hardwired for that type of, or, or non-interaction i think that we're that we need those types of relationships. We need human interaction. We need that emotional connection, even if it's just a, a smile. And if you if you take that away from human beings for a long period of time, I, I don't think you're going to get good results. I think you're get, you're going to have a lot of animosity that's built up, a lot of stress, and you never know where you're going to where it's going where the release valve is going to be. And it goes back to what Chris Cole always says. I'm a huge fan of Chris Cole, and he's he's a specialist in volatility. And his hypothesis is you can't destroy volatility; you can only transfer it. So right. meaning. If the Fed comes in and tries to, let's say, destroy volatility in the stock market, or if we try to destroy volatility in asset prices, meaning that we're just trying to create markets that just always go up, then you're going to see volatility express itself somewhere else. And and he says that's you know mostly why or that is one of the reasons why you may see a lot more social unrest because that volatility has to go somewhere and if there's some people a small percentage of Americans are getting wildly rich and a lot of the people are left out and just watching the game they're going to get pissed and they're going to buy torches and pitchforks and. They're going to head to the street. So you can't get rid of that volatility. It's just a question of do you want it in the stock market or do you want it in civil unrest? Yeah, I worked for a company that had an industrial scale chemical process at one point. And that's how I always, when I think about the gears and the wrenches and the motors and the regulators and the, and the you know, augers of the macro economy and I think about it as a machine that kind of works and I've made this analog before on the podcast I always think you know well if you're going to go in and you're going to adjust 
whatever. You're going to go in, you're going to adjust the pressure in one part of the system, or you're going to go in and adjust how much, you know, nitrogen you purge the system with or whatever. Any of these little variables that the Fed keeps leaning and leaning and leaning on to try to, you know, temporarily band-aid a situation. At some point, you know, in an industrial process, we had a blow-off valve, right? Which is where you reach a certain PSI within the system and this thing kicks out the side of the building and boom, it's got a fucking, you know, it's there as a release valve so that the process doesn't blow up for pressurized processes. And I always thought about the Fed the same way, exactly what you're saying, which is when when you tweak one variable enough, all of the other variables have to adjust. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't and know. I like what I was listening to Mike Green the other day. I think he was talking to my good buddy Eric Townsend, and it was a podcast episode. And he was talking about how he sees the Fed and the government trying to, or what they've done in the past few years or past couple decades, is they've tried to turn the stock market into an investment vehicle meaning that it's it's not a market that goes up and down it's it's just something where we can where younger people or people in their 30s and 40s can put their savings and use it to retire or be very confident that they're going to grow their wealth and be able to count on that for their retirement and that's not what the stock market is meant for and when you <laughs> think about market. when you think about all these unfunded pension liabilities across the country too every one of them when you read that, oh, CalPERS is putting in a new chief investment officer, or you read, oh, the city of Chicago is issuing a billion-dollar bond or whatever, the the goal is always to, hey, we have an expectation we got to get 7% returns annually. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have this you know, unfunded liability with pensions going forward. And so with no interest uh, in bank accounts and nowhere to get yield, the, the market de facto becomes the only tool to do that and you just you hope that the the carry trade of being in the stock market eventually makes you whole and at the same time like what you're saying it really is the only place for people to quote unquote invest kind of it's the primary place unless you want to invest in real estate or something like that but it's really the the primary investment vehicle which is the fed putting all of its eggs in one basket which means if the stock market goes well then what the fuck happens then what does that chaos look like versus if we had just let it continue to be a free market of sorts? Yeah, I, I think that we've built the U.S. economy around three things, asset bubbles, uh, debt and confidence, and ever increasingly it's it's asset bubbles. And you, you think about kind of what that does to an economy where you're a one-trick pony and it always reminds me of venezuela how they built their entire economy around oil so when oil went from called a hundred dollars a barrel down to uh 30 you know they started to really have problems they needed to print the money to make up the difference and boom there you get hyperinflation i know there were a lot more cross currents than that but that's kind of the, the the short story so I think that what we're doing is we're building our entire economy around asset prices. And if you think that's rather uh, extreme, I would just say, okay, well, think about what would happen to the United States economy if the stock market went down by 50% and stayed there. 
for the next decade or two, like Japan. And at the same time, if housing prices went down by 50%, which, by the way, is their historic norm, and stayed there for the next uh, two decades, you know, what would the think about all the knock on effects going back to the pension funds, the, the baby boomers retirement, uh, re- retiring or and how much they're spending uh, adds to the economy and think about what would happen to the, the job outlook for the millennials. And you combine that with the um, the lockdowns for let's call it the Cervasa sickness. And what does that look like? Another thing that I'd like to point out on that note that I think people really need to pay attention to. And I, I went over this in one of my videos. Going back to 2003, we've had these, let's call them um, health scares, every two years, in fact, less than that. So going back to 2003, we've had 10 of these, we'll call them virus. You know, we had the swine flu, we had H1N1, we had the bird flu, we had... Uh, Ebola, we had all of these things, like 10 of them that I counted for my video. So it's caught one every two years. Well, now we've kind of set the precedence where the standard operating procedure, I think moving forward, especially for states like California, is if there's any hint of the next swine flu, let's say swine flu 2.0, and whatever they call it, you know, and you know the media is just going to take the ball and run with it. So whenever there's a, a, a virus or a flu in the future, they're going to, I mean, it's going to be front page of CNN for, you know, weeks on end. You know, are we just going to go right back into lockdown mode? And I understand that it might not be as bad and everything, but I, I think that it's going to be their default position where they go, okay, we have to lock down because we've got to wait and see how this, you know, flu 2.0 pans out and if it's something that we really need to be worried about because we're so uh, gun shy we've got this kind of ptsd from uh the cerveza sickness and so if we're going into lockdown for let's just call it a month or two uh every single two years indefinitely when you combine that with everything else that we've talked about i mean how does that work for the u.s economy and i i think Going back to your release valve analogy, it's got to be the U.S. dollar because I think that the only way that people will be willing to go into these lockdowns, not that everyone would, but like let's say states like California, is if we're able to print money in the form of stimulus checks and just give everyone stimulus and it's like, well, why not? Why? Why? What's the downside of going into a lockdown when we can just print uh, stimmies. I don't know if you saw that gal on TikTok. <laughs> that was that was awesome. But we can just print these stimulus checks and give them to everyone, and then we can all be safe. But you see, what happens is you can only do that so long as we don't have severe consumer price inflation. Because at some point in time, the pain that people feel from the price inflation exceeds their fear of the next virus, right? So that that release valve, I think, has got to be the dollar long term. But so you've got this economy that's built on these asset prices always going up. And then you combine that with the future risk of more lockdowns. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, for people who are trying to look at investment ideas, 
I think you've, you've got to look at longer term uh, the dollar going down. So then the next question becomes down against what? And so I'm not saying it's down against the euro or the yen because, you know, that's another fiat currency that can do the exact same thing. What I am saying is, in my opinion, it's most likely down against consumer prices in the domestic economy. So you take that uh, for what it's worth. And I know, I think the dollar, you know, short term is, is really oversold and uh, we could see it pop. So short term, who knows, you know, in the next six months, it could go up to 110, 120. I don't know what it's going to do. But I just think over the next five years, 10 years, when you look at all of these factors that you've got to look at uh, uh, the United States having significant consumer price inflation. Yeah, and the, the the most frightening thing about what you just talked about is the precedent that we're setting here and how we are going to react to future pandemics. Because like you said, right, we had these 10 major outbreaks over the last 20 years and probably aside from H1M1 and the swine flu, I'm not sure anybody could name probably half of them. Um, and the reason for that is because we really didn't change anything. We just kind of went about our business, and that was that. This one, I think, um, you know, you would I, – I don't really know how to say this without sounding like an ass, but you'll understand the point I'm trying to make. You know, if we were going to set some type of precedent for how we're going to react to pandemics of the future, I, I would think it would be more beneficial for us to do that to uh, a pandemic that is more lethal – than the one we're currently in the midst of. Because as we've talked about before, you know, and I've said on this podcast before, okay, well, what, you know, this is three times more deadly than the flu. Okay, well, what do we do for the flu? Well, we do nothing. There's no lockdowns. There's no nothing. You don't have to stay home. You people just go about their daily lives when they have the flu, and the flu is just a, a you know, a fact of life in the winter. Some people, when they get sick, they try to avoid going out. Some people don't feel good for a couple of days, so they they can't go out. You try to wash your hands. You try to, you know, take precautions. But we do nothing for the flu. And so then the question becomes, is our reaction now of locking down the entire globe? And as you said earlier, and as I said on my podcast with Whitney a couple of days ago, putting people essentially in, in prisons and ratting out your neighbors for having more than five people over and, yeah. you know, smoking these small businesses is that the solution for something that's three times as deadly as the flu? Is that three times the response? No, that's a million times the response. So then the question becomes, like you said, what kind of horrifying precedent does that set for the next pandemic, George, that's, you know, five times as deadly as COVID? It's just the next swine flu. And I think that in the past, we just kind of shrugged it off and it's like, oh, that's something... Uh, for the Chinese to deal with or wherever it was centrally located. And uh, we just don't really think anything of it. But And then we just kind of see how it plays out. But in the future, I, I don't think that's going to be the way we look at it. I think we're going to approach it, especially with Biden in the White House, uh, we're going to approach it with, with lockdowns, even if it is something that we in the past wouldn't even have thought about, wouldn't even have really contemplated for more than a, a minute or two, just seeing it on the news briefly. I think now it's going to, we're, we're going to do seriously contemplate locking down for every single one of these we have over the next call it, 10 years. Yeah. Our calibration is way off, right? Our, yeah. Yeah. Our you're response like that. Be to, go ahead. 
Yeah, you're like that beaten puppy dog in the corner. You know, it's just it's just shaking in fear, and every single time you just move, it just like freaks out because it thinks you're going to hit it. It's it's like the exact same thing with uh, the way we look at you know, this this virus, and and now that may be right or wrong. I'm not here to say that it is, but I think that that's what we're going to be doing in the future, whenever something like this or something like the swine flu or the bird flu or H1N1 pops up, uh, which they inevitably will. I thought you said something interesting earlier that I want to go back to. You were talking about the role that the Fed plays in people's lives. And I remember back, you know, when I was 18 years old or 19 years old, and I was interested in the stock market at, you know, 18 years old, I, I would kind of pay attention to what was going on. I wasn't super deep into it. But you know, about 16, 17, 18 is when I really started first paying attention to stocks. And I couldn't have told you what the Federal Reserve was then. I think that the generation now, and I'm you can maybe help me answer this. Am I imagining things or do way more people that are 18, 19 years old now know what the Fed is? Is the Fed way more active in the younger generations? Uh, you know, I remember being 18, George, and, and when you would invest, you'd think, okay, blue chips, dividends, and that was it, you know, and and the market would go up and the market would go down. There wasn't at least to me, I wasn't really in the industry, though, so I don't know. Like, were floor traders watching what the Fed was doing? Probably. But do you think the Fed plays a, a substantially bigger role now? And do you think it it is more uh, – you think the younger generation now understands what the Fed does more than, than, than what they used to? 100%. And I, it takes me back to a conversation I had with my good buddy Jeff Snyder, who is one of the smartest – people I think on the planet earth and uh, he's an expert on the euro dollar system and I was talking to him about how he would know if the US economy was fundamentally sound in the future if we've made the changes that we need to make in order for the the US economy to be on a, on a sound foundation what indicators would he need to say would he need to see and he said that no one would care about the fed and meaning that we don't care what they say we don't care if they raise interest it's not even front page news if they raise interest rates by 25 basis points or they lower no one knows the name of the fed chair you know other than just a, a small group of, of macro geeks like you and i that the mainstream people don't care at all. And he says that's how he would know that we've fixed the economy. And I think that makes a lot of sense when you really think it through. And I and going back to what you were saying, I think I'm about 10 years older than you are. And so we can see this transition in our own lives. Because when I was growing up, you know, when I was, let's say, 17, 18 years old, nobody knew who the Fed chair, I mean, nobody knew that. Like, definitely not any of my buddies, but not even my, my parents never talked about it. I mean, no way. And then you see in, in your generation, maybe 10 years um, later, how you maybe kind of knew what the Fed was, kind of knew what stocks were, but you see this transition to where now, I think the 17 and 18-year-olds not only know who the Fed is, 
But my gosh, they, they you know Tesla, they you know the Tesla stocks and Bitcoin and every single cryptocurrency out there and the stock market. You got to buy the dip and all these things to get rich. And I think that's a function of a lot of things, but uh, definitely social media. And I don't think that uh, too many people have in our space have thought through the impact of social media on the current bubble and you know it goes back to that saying and i'm going off on a tangent here so i apologize but it just it just made me think of this it goes back to that saying that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent and so how did we come to that that saying well a lot of smart people uh, a lot of ogs saw that through the decades of experience dealing in markets but is it even more extreme today with the introduction of social media and this online echo chamber yeah. that we're all a part of? So going back to the late 1990s, the dot-com bubble, we didn't have TikTok. The young people that are getting their stimulus checks didn't have uh, Instagram Right where where they could go on there and they see every single person they're following is getting rich buying Tesla stock or Bitcoin. I hate to pick on those uh, those assets, but you know those are the ones that have really gone up significant, just to an extreme. Well, some of the main ones that we hear in the media all the time. So you can imagine if you're a 17 year old kid today or 18 year old kid, and you're getting your stimulus checks let's say every three months or so, and all your friends, or so you think, are making a killing that you see on Instagram driving around in their Lamborghini or, you know, partying, partying buying bottles of Cristal or, you know, if they're 21 or whatever. And then, um, and you see it on TikTok. I, I keep referring back to this video that uh, Grant Williams posted on Twitter the other day and I used on my, uh, on one of my whiteboard videos. And I don't know if you saw it, Chris, but basically the gist of it, it was this little 15-year-old girl that was there doing this TikTok video. And it's her, her name was like Anna Annabelle Stacks or something like that. But she has this little TikTok uh, channel, I guess. It's, and it's how to basically get rich in today's environment for other 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds, <laughs> by the way. And so she's, she says how to take your $600 stimmy and turn it into $13,000. So then what she does in her little uh, TikTok spiel, the 30-second video, is she goes over these three stocks that have just gone up massively in the last year or so. I think one was that, I forgot the ticker symbol, but it was the basically where you can fill up your electronic car. You know, it's like a gas station yeah, one was for electronic Blink, cars. BLNK. Blink, yeah. Blink. One was Tesla, and then the other one, I can't remember what it was. But she's like, you know, this stock has gone up 2,000%, and if you would have invested so much, you would have made this much. And at the end of the video, she says, investing in any of these companies will bring you huge returns. <laughs> well, will, will bring you huge returns. You know, not might, will. And so it, my point is, if you're a young person that's getting these stimulus checks, and you look at the job market, and you're like, Okay, I got nothing there. Like that's not going to give me a better future. That's not going to get me out of poverty. That's not going to get me out of the lower middle class. But by taking a flyer on 
Tesla going to the moon or whatever, you know, that that's a way for me to potentially get ahead. And if I could take my $600 stimmy and turn it into 13,000, well then I could take my 13,000 and turn it into 200,000 or 300,000 and then I'll have I, I can get ahead. And I think that's what's driving the market. Well, or one of the main things that's driving the market now that wasn't necessarily driving the market back in the late 90s and wasn't driving the markets when all of the OGs came up with a saying that the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Therefore, my conclusion is that this bubble that we're in can get exponentially larger and have and be exponentially worse when it finally does crash. The horrifying thing about that is I remember being a teenager and not knowing shit about finance or equity valuation or anything at all. And you would watch TV and anytime a investment product or service was pitched, there was always that disclaimer at the end, past performance is not indicative of future results. And <laughs> since, since I heard that for the first time when I was in my teens, thinking, all right, well, is that really necessary to say? I mean, does, don't people know that? I mean, I remember being 18, 20, 22, being like, yeah, duh, you know, the, the market goes up and down. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Over and over and over. At the end, Fisher Investments, past performance is not indicative of future results. And, you know, since then, with the financial news that I've watched throughout the course of my life, and in financial advertisements and various disclaimers for all types of things, I have probably heard that saying a trillion times. Now, what does that mean? That means that that is really, at its core, the most, uh, you know, ubiquitous and really what, what, what is probably perceived as one of the most glaring falsehoods in the industry would be, to tell somebody, because I made 2,000% last year, I'm going to make 2,000% in the following year, right? It, it's right. The, it is the golden standard of an example of what not to do as an investment advisor. And here we are at, we have reached a point in this, you know, where things have come fucking full circle, you know, like the Lion King, like the full Hakuna Matata <laughs> circle of life. And here we are back with these kids who are too young to even have independently registered broker accounts online peddling to other kids who are clueless that past performance is indicative of future results. And, you know, it is the reason that we have regulation in the industry. And I'm not even an advocate for fucking regulation like you. I mean, we're, we're not super regulation heavy guys, but it, if I had to choose one disclaimer for the whole industry to use as a blanket disclaimer for any type of security, it would be past performance is not indicative of future results, but instead right. we get money pouring into this bullshit and into these, you know, companies that are just cash furnaces and into, you know, cryptos, which are a an asset class that has yet to be regulated that's been around for barely a decade that nobody knows where it's going to wind up it could be the next thing it could be it could be the next adoption of currency as we know it or it could be a complete zero yet everybody is investing in all of these things and pouring all of this cash into all of this stuff under the guise that past performance 
is going to be indicative of future results, man. Are we fucked or what? You know what I want to do really quick, Chris, that I think sums it up. And we're talking about how it might be different this time in a bad way. But I, I want to take a step back and realize that it, it's really not. And I, I've got this little paragraph here that I'd like to read really quick. And I think that uh, your, your viewers will enjoy. All right. And this is, from, uh, this is from a gentleman by the name of Ludwig von Mises. Ah. And it's a, a summary of his theory of the crack-up boom. So this is uh, just a summary of understanding a crack-up boom. The crack-up boom develops out of the same process of credit expansion and resulting distortions of the economy that occurs during the normal boom phase of the Austrian business cycle theory. In the crack-up boom, the central bank attempts to sustain the boom indefinitely without regard to consequences such as inflation and asset price bubbles. The problem comes when the government continuously pours more and more money, injecting it into the economy to give it short-term boost, to give it a short-term boost, which eventually triggers a fundamental breakdown in our economy. In their efforts to prevent any downturn in the economy, monetary authorities continue to expand the supply of money and credit at an accelerating pace and avoid turning off the taps of the money supply until it's too late. Yeah, well, if that doesn't sum it up, I don't really know what does. I mean, that that is exactly what's happening. And the key phrase in there that I caught was, increasing the money supply with acceleration that it is it is starting to go parabolic yeah and and this is you know history might not repeat itself but it definitely rhymes this is something that mises obviously pointed out and i think it's exactly what we are living through today yeah, I agree with you. And I think that people are too short-sighted to understand it. And that's why people are reading Marx and not Mises in university. And people are reading Keynes and not, you know, Friedman uh, when they are uh, taking their uh, financial courses, right? It's, it's just, it's a case of having to, needing to see the forest through the trees. I want to read something to you. When you mentioned before, you think social media is part of the problem. My, it reminded me of a tweet my buddy Matt Stewart put out last week. <laughs> and uh, Matt is a great guy. I wrote a lot of stuff with Matt and talked to him basically every day during the whole Herbalife saga um, and just became pals with him. He, he's a former, uh, former investment banker with RBC. I think he's closer to your age, George. So when you said, you know, I think I'm about 10 years older than you and we're not taking into account the role that social media has to play. It reminded me of this tweet he put out Yeah. on January 5th. He said, Morgan Stanley just used Adobe Acrobat and a Twitter feed to move the value of Tesla by 15 to $20 billion. This is after they <laughs> upgraded it. It took most companies in the S&P 500 a century to create that value, actually selling real products to real customers. CFA Institute should strip Adam Jonas's license. Hashtag sad. And, and that is, that's what, you know, older school people 
see today. That's that's what they see. They they see exactly what it is that you just said. Yeah, you know, it's I I, I listened to a few talking heads out there to try to get a, a vibe for what's going on, and you see. I don't want to mention any names, but you see a lot of these people that I've uh, was kind of on the fence about, and more so recently, I, I'm not on the fence anymore. <laughs> but you see them pitching their spacs on CNBC, and y- you know what's interesting, Chris? On that note, I just thought of I remember uh, uh, several of your uh, interviews and with, uh, with with Tesla charts, but several of them with people who are kind of, let's say, bearish on Tesla. And they were in a completely separate industry. And they really didn't know anything about Elon Musk or or the, the, the company or the balance sheet or the P&L or anything. But they heard Elon say something that they were, uh, something about the industry that they were an expert in. And I'm going back to Tesla charts. And remember how he was an expert, I think, in solar panels. Yeah. And Elon came out uh, talking about the the shingles, like for the the, the roofs. Yep. yep. How they're going to generate electricity, and he thought, "Wait a minute, no, that's impossible. No, that that's that's not the way it works." And that's kind of what got him into the whole "what's going on with Tesla" thing here, and that's what kind of uh, sparked his uh, skepticism. Well, I was the exact same way with uh, this, you know gentleman that's been going on CNBC recently talking about the SPACs. But until he went on there and I saw him pitching Open Door, and for your viewers who, who don't know, that's my area of expertise is real estate. And I know it extremely, extremely well. I have I've bought and sold countless homes in the United States since retiring in 2012 as an entrepreneur. And many of those homes I've bought sight unseen. And so this is basically the model for open door where they're, where they're going in there. It's kind of like a car max where they'll give you a quote in like an instant quote, and you can have that up to three days. They'll buy your property and they kind of have someone go out there and do a brief inspection, but it's kind of sight unseen. And then they'll try to flip it and then keep it in their network. And then they try to make money on the back end from, you know, mortgages and title fees and broker fees and whatnot. And then they kind of give you a discount of 1.5%. And that's to draw everyone in, try to make the, the seamless process and create this, uh, again, this network where they're kind of uh, making money on the front end and the back end. This is the pitch. Right. And, I, and I get it. I get it. But what they're not telling you is it's not possible to make money on the front end with that business model, especially at scale nationally. There's no way you do it. And Achenos pointed out that uh, Zillow has been trying to do this and losing money. I read an article that suggested that Open Door is losing about $11,000 per flip per house. And then they're just trying to make it up on the back end and through all of their, you know, you know mortgage processing and uh, title fees and whatnot. But uh, as someone who's, who's done that, who's uh, boots on the ground 
uh, has been in the trenches in that game and tried to manage subcontractors, tried to manage groups of electricians, tried to manage groups of plumbers and roofers and landscapers coming in and getting a property to a point where it's ready to sell. Uh, you just you cannot do that at scale unless unless you're getting the property at pennies on the dollar. You, you have to get the property at pennies on the dollar. If you pay retail for that property over the long run, because of the fix-up cost to get ready to sell, you're, you're just going to get your butt handed to you. So anyway, my point is it, that's what really kind of triggered the skepticism in my mind with all these SPACs uh, is when I saw this gentleman pitch uh, Open Door, which he just took public uh, with a SPAC. And I think that is just another indication of this crack-up boom that Mises talked about. Yeah, so that exemplifies to you exactly you know it's the same type of uh it's the same exact type of eye-opening situation that you're talking about with and that was the case with tesla charts he was like well you know i work in the solar industry and i know that's impossible and so let's start from there and then see (laughs) and then see where we wind up and you know i think there's a lot of instances like that with the macro economy too just i think that the everyday person can kind of set off their own red flags by looking at. And these are the basic things like being encouraged to spend instead of save, you know, not being able to get interest on your money despite the supply and the demand of, of lenders and borrowers um, and those types of things. I mean, what other signals do you think the everyday person could have their awakening with when it comes to macro? What's somebody that doesn't know dick about finance what could they what what's something you know two examples you could explain to them that show them hey the system is not working as it should be and as we said before um we're just building up pressure on that blow off valve how do you explain that to a plumber well, george oh well zero percent interest rates number one I, yeah but I what, if, what if they don't know what that means what, what if a person doesn't know what that means what does that mean zero percent interest rates i mean i know interest rates are low isn't that good well, no, because that it means that the economy can't withstand higher interest rates. And if you look at a chart, I'd tell the plumber, if you go back through history, the, the, the 1900s, the 1800s, you see that in the United States, the, the average interest rate is around 5 or 6%. And the, now it's at 0%. That's, that's not good. Uh, and another thing I'd tell them that would probably resonate even more is from – 1776 to 1996 so the first 200 years of the history of the united states it racked up five roughly five trillion dollars in debt we will add five trillion dollars of debt just this year just this year so i think the plumber would see that and say okay well, I don't really get that, but something's not right there. Yeah. Something's not right if we increase our debt by $5 trillion this year and it took us 220 years to do it in the first place. Right, right. And you, so can, say, you that, can say the same thing about the money supply too, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if that would resonate as, as much with them. Uh, I would also just simply uh, use an example that I used 
in uh, one of my videos the other day talking about the real estate market where I, I talked about real estate. Again, that's something that most people can relate to. And we think about nominal prices going up. So this is what I do to try to help them understand inflation and how badly they're being screwed by inflation. I'd say back in 2012, I was buying houses in Kansas City for about $75,000, well, all in, you know, my my cost basis. Now those homes are, let's say, worth 150000 okay? But back then, uh, occasionally, I would go through uh, Chick-fil-A, and I'd get, I'm uh, not a big fast food guy, but I'd get like a grilled chicken sandwich and like one of those little cups of yogurt. Well, fast forward to 2020, and like I said, those houses are worth about $150,000. So, you know, it's 100% return. Uh, most people would look at that and say, oh, great. Well, George has, has done well. But then you have to ask yourself, well, well, have I? Because I just went by Chick-fil-A the other day, now 2020. And that same grilled chicken sandwich right. and yogurt that I used to buy, and this is a true story, cost me almost $14. $14 for a grilled chicken sandwich and a little teeny cup of yogurt. And I almost fell out of my car. And I thought that they they um, they overcharged me. And I looked at the receipt. And sure enough, it was accurate. And I saw that little cup of yogurt it was $5.50, almost $6 when you include the tax. And so what I the question I asked in my video and what I'd asked the plumber is – my house that I bought in 2012 that you think I've made a lot of money on or has increased my purchasing power, I can't buy any more Chick-fil-A or maybe even less with my house than I could in 2012. Right. So just because you see the price of something go up that you own, it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting richer. In fact, you could be getting poorer. And if you look at the long-term ramifications of the debt that we're incurring, the deficits, the Fed monetizing the debt, I would argue that even if we do increase our purchasing power in the short term, in the long run, we will, we will become poorer as a society. And I always go back to uh, – I'm kind of bouncing around here – but I always go back to uh, Schiff's example that he uses of, of a person being stranded on a deserted island. So I think that really paints the picture. We see our, let's say now with our stimmy checks and uh, you know Bitcoin going to forty grand and all of our stocks going up to the moon and even the stocks that I bought. I'm not a big stock guy, but I bought a ton back in uh, March, mostly commodity producers. Even those have gone through the moon, and and so we see our account balances go up or the amount of currency units that we have increasing, and we associate that with wealth as though we're getting richer but it's it's really not the way it works because if we use that example taking it to an extreme of a deserted island let's say that you're stranded there you've got a chest full of a billion dollars but all you have are two coconuts and some salt water right <laughs> so are you rich or are you poor you're poor because you can't buy anything those green pieces of paper, you can't use them for anything. So my point is, okay, fine, we could be papering over the problem with these stimulus checks and this $5 trillion deficit, 
that we've uh, tacked on this year. But but by doing that, we're distorting the economy. Right. We're creating malinvestment. We're misallocating resources, which in the future is going to create an environment where our economy and our society is going to be producing less stuff, fewer goods and services. Therefore, regardless of what our account balance shows, we are going to be poorer as a society. And that that's what that's what I try to get the plumber to understand. That is the key. I think you touched on it. The key is understanding what inflation does. I think a lot of it boils down to that. The key is small examples. If you hold a hundred dollars in your hand from today until twelve months from now, when when you get to the end of those 12 months, that $100 is, generally speaking, going to buy you 2% less in terms of goods and services than what it would buy you when you first received it. That is what inflation does. So your $100 now, all things being equal, in a very general example of inflation, but that $100 is going to buy you $98 worth of goods a year from now, then it's going to buy you $96 worth of goods a year after that and vice versa and all the way down the you know all the way down the it depreciates two percent compounds it, right, it's right. got a compound too. it does yeah. compound right and assuming that inflation stays at two percent so you have to know that if you just hold money it is losing its purchasing power right that's the first thing you gotta understand the second thing is a great point that you made which is if you buy and flip a home uh you know over the course of 10 years and you make 100% on it or you make 100% of what you invested into it, that 100% needs to be compared to how much prices have risen over the course of that 10 years, right? So when you use the word nominal, you're talking about nominal and real. Well, you know, a lot of times when people use the word nominal, they say, all right, well, this is what I, you know, this is what I made not kind of including uh, the real rate of inflation, when people talk about real, you know, real yields, real investment return, uh, oftentimes that uh, accounts for things like inflation. So when you hear those two words kind of being bounced around, and that's a very general definition, um, but you know, nominally you may have made money, but in a real sense, you didn't make a hundred percent because it's not adjusted for rising prices and many other variables that happen uh, in the interim. And so I think that is. The key, and once people understand that, they understand that the bar is kind of constantly moving, right? So if you're if you're a plumber and you make fifty thousand dollars a year, and the next year you make fifty thousand dollars a year, and you think this is great because my salary has stayed consistent, well, you can only purchase forty six thousand dollars worth of goods the next year. So it's this moving bar. It's this fucking, uh, you know, thing at the dog track that's going around in a circle that you have to keep up with. You have to you have to kind of keep up with it. And it's that's what makes it so nefarious is it's this right. kind of hidden tax on everybody that people don't really take the time to understand. Um, and it's in gaming that right. The Fed encouraging higher inflation which is, you know, you don't need to be an economist to know that that's what the Fed has been saying over the last year. We want, we want inflation to run hot. We want more inflation. You have to grasp that that means that your cost of living is going to go up too. So if your income or your investment returns 
do not rise to meet that. They don't rise commensurate with what inflation does. You are actually taking a loss, and you may not even know it. You may think that you're making gains. And that is, I think if you can understand that one thing, you can kind of go out in in a million different directions from there, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that goes back to why we're seeing social unrest. And it goes right back to the the thing that we saw at the Capitol or the Antifa riots or the BLM or, or any of that stuff. And I, I get it. There's a lot of, of factors in there. But I think that's an underlying issue we can't ignore. And going back to what you just said there on inflation, I think that we're looking at the consumer prices, which I think we should do. But I, I did a video the other day on the you know, posing the question, has the dollar crashed? Because as you know, the dollar has gone from what's called 100 on the DXY down to 90. It, was, it got down to 89. I think it's above 90 now. And the DXY, just for your listeners, is the dollar measured against a basket of other currencies, mostly the euro, 57% the euro. So a lot of people have said in 2000, oh my gosh, the dollar crashed because it's down by 10% and they get hyper focused on that, but they ignore everything else. So my point was, look at what the dollar has done relative to housing prices. Look at what the dollar has done relative to gold in the last, call it two years. Look at what the dollar has done relative to Bitcoin. You wanna talk about a dollar collapse. You know, look at what it's done compared to stocks. Look at what it's done compared to bonds. You see, so all these assets that have gone up 200, 300, 400 percent, that's the dollar losing purchasing power against that asset that you need to have a decent future. So that in and of itself I think creates anxiety. It creates it it creates euphoria for some that own the assets, but for the people who don't, they just see their future becoming more and more bleak as the dollars they have lose purchasing power, not only to goods and services, but also to housing, Bitcoin, gold, stocks, bonds, etc. Did you see today? I have to ask you, uh, Facebook. Banned Ron Paul today? No, oh, you're kidding me. Ron Paul posted today. Uh, w- this is what Ron Paul tweeted out uh, earlier today. With no explanation other than repeatedly going against our community standards, Facebook has blocked me from managing my page. Never have we received notice of violating community standards in the past, and nowhere is the offending post identified. The only thing we posted to Facebook today was my weekly Texas Straight Talk column, which I have published every week since 1976. And there's a photograph of Ron Paul's Facebook page. And it says, due to repeatedly going against our community standards, you're temporary, temporarily blocked from creating new pages and managing your existing pages. Review our community standards to see what's a violation on Facebook. Now, can you fucking believe that? When I think about, you know, a perfect example of a guy who is a person of integrity, who has argued his policy stance respectfully, all right, 
you can't really get Ron Paul on anything. The guy is a veteran. He served the country honorably. He spent decades in the Senate. All right. He ran for president. He has always been truthful. He's always been respectful. Even when you can tell he's exasperated, he, he's respectful. I, mm-hmm. I, I have never seen and him. And he's principled. He's principled, Chris. He's the only politician that I've ever seen that actually has principles and a belief system. And that he votes according to no matter what. Yep. yep. Whether it's popular or not. So if you take exception with that, if you can take exception with Ron Paul and say he's violating community standards or that's some kind of hate speech, I mean, we have gone over the edge. What do you make yeah. of that? What do you make of that? I think it goes back to the episode you did with Whitney the other day and that these these tech companies, and it's it's a very difficult topic for me to process because just to finish the thought there, these tech companies are becoming ingrained and just kind of having a a political agenda. And I I totally understand that argument. I want to believe that they're private entities and that they're behaving in a way that's just best for their bottom line. Um, But it's becoming harder to maintain that belief and i i I don't know i I hope i'm wrong i mean just with the 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 twitter purge you know that's happened on my twitter account i've never seen my uh my followers on twitter go down and i've probably lost i don't know five or six hundred over the last uh 24 hours and then i had a video the first one ever a band by youtube the other day uh, and it was they, – they were nice enough to email me and tell me why. It was a video on the Cervasa sickness, and basically I was saying – I was just giving facts, data, charts, and my conclusion was that uh, the government should not be involved. And uh, if you want to lock yourself down, that's fine. If you want to wear a mask, that's fantastic. But it should be the decision of the individual and it should be the decision of the individual business owner and the government should not be involved. And they said that's what broke their uh, terms and conditions because I, 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 I said something that was counter to the opinion that the government, that the local government has on how to handle the Cervasa sickness. So that, that's where we are right now. And I, I don't know where we go from here. You know, I, I was reading an, a very interesting tweet on the subject yesterday where this person pointed out that, okay, great. If you want to treat Twitter and these social media companies as private entities, and if you want to say, well, they should be able to ban whomever they want, that's great. But if you're going to do that, then small and mid-sized businesses around the United States should be able to decide whether or not they want to stay open. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. Unless you want there to be a double standard, which there is. And this is horrifying because this doesn't just say to me, oh, we're skittish about some of the things that he said. This says to me, this is a very clear and bold example of we're incapable of having civilized discourse about disagreements because that's the only thing I've ever seen Ron Paul have is is civilized discourse 
with anybody on TV, in Congress, with Ben Bernanke, with whoever, in his books. I've read his books. I mean, he's just, he's a civil person. He's a person of integrity. And that, I don't know, that's that's what that says to me. And then to be able to go on Twitter, George, and to see a picture of Kathy Griffin holding the severed head of Donald Trump, you know, you just think, all right, it, it just feels like a double standard. I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah, and I think that you made a great point on your interview with Whitney about um, about kind of a, a double standard here, where we're talking about the the protests, the riots the other day, and contrasting that with uh, you know Trump. And I don't condone what Trump did. I, I you know, I I kind of dislike all politicians equally. Uh, so, you know, I don't really get involved with politics too much. But you know, people were really on him, obviously for you know, inciting violence or, or whatever, if you want to call it that. And I, I'm not saying that I have an opinion one way or the other, but uh, you made a great point that several politicians did that back when Antifa was rioting. And um, it was just, okay, yeah, that that's, you know, it makes sense to me. It really was kind of a, a no big deal type of thing. So I, I don't know where you draw the line, but you, you know really what it boils down to, Chris is religion and i was reading an article the other day not an economist but someone who had this hypothesis that in the united states we've moved further and further away from religion over the past decades and for better or for worse we're, we're, we're that's the way society is moving and he said that as human beings, we need something to believe in. We need something that, that's, that's bigger than ourselves. And if we don't have that, we run into big, big problems. And he thinks, and this was his hypothesis, that people are filling that void in their lives that that religion that the lack of religion has left with politics and that's why we're seeing such a, a decisive or a, a divisive um a political landscape today and and he argued that it's only going to get worse right. and he also he also took that thought and layered it over what we're seeing with certain stocks uh such as tesla that, that you could call that <laughs> a cult and that and definitely people get emotional about it and I would take it to the next step and and layer that idea over Bitcoin cool and listen, that that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next let's talk yeah, and about I, I want to yeah and I want to be very clear long term I'm very bullish Bitcoin I, I definitely see a, a probability, a high probability, that the price could go to a hundred thousand dollars over the long term. I think the probability of Bitcoin becoming global money and the network of Bitcoin competing with the network of the future digital dollar and the current digital yuan is uh, up in the air. I think that the probability of it winning out over the long run is is less than the probability of the price just going higher. And it remaining a, a kind of digital 
store of value, if you want to see it that way. But in the short term, and I own Bitcoin, I've owned it for a long time. But in the short term, I just see so much emotion around it. And I mean, just it, it's everywhere. It, it, I, even my uh, my the gal that cleans my my condo here barely speaks English. You know, she's a Hispanic gal. And uh, when she first came over here, or when she came over here, what was this, maybe two or three weeks ago, she asked me if she should buy Bitcoin. You know, I'm getting texts from all these people that I went to high school with that I don't, I don't, I haven't talked to in years, right, asking me about Bitcoin. And you see the, the people on Twitter that are, I mean, emotional is an understatement about how they see Bitcoin. And I, I just think that for a lot of people, it has... It's, it's their religion. They, they go to the church of Bitcoin, just like some people go to the church of Tesla and other peoples go to the go to the church of the Democrats or the Republicans or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And I, I'm and so I guess the next step, if you're looking at it from a standpoint of, of how to use that as information for your portfolio or how to position your portfolio in the case of Bitcoin, I don't know. I, I don't. Then that's kind of the question I posed on Twitter the other day. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know if short term it's it's a good thing for the price. Meaning longer term, it's maybe not so much. I, I just kind of threw that idea out there, and of course, when I did, I just got just attacked from <laughs> from the whole. Uh, what do they call themselves? The the cyber hornets or whatever, they just jumped all <laughs> over me. And oh my gosh, my Twitter feed for the next week was just nonstop um, rants from these, uh, you know, people telling me how stupid I was and I'm going to be poor the rest of my life, um, which just furthered my, my, my point. But yeah, that, that's kind of what I think it goes back to, Chris, is that we're, we don't have religion anymore to a certain degree and people need to fill that void with something and they're doing it with certain assets and uh and political views yeah i think uh i'm interested to know when you say you think bitcoin could go to a hundred thousand in the long term um you know you're talking about essentially a 2x or a 3x from here what do you see as the long term and how do you weigh that against the potential risk and what i think is a very real risk of it going to zero I don't know that it goes to zero. I, I think there's a significant downside, but I don't know that it goes to zero because it, it, Bitcoin is like a, it's like an electronic cockroach. You, you, you can't really get rid of it. Like even a government, they couldn't really, they can make it illegal, right? but you can't really get rid of it right? Uh, because it, it, it's decentralized. So I think there's always going to be a, a, a market for it to a certain degree. So. I don't know that it goes down to zero, but I think that especially short term, there's uh, some some downside for sure. Um, and but that, that's a I think, that's a fair point. Yeah, and, and I mean it's it's very volatile, and that's why I've always said. I mean, for the last year since I started my YouTube channel, really, when I've talked about Bitcoin, I've always said that I think it's a fantastic speculation, and I've always said that I do not think Bitcoin competes with gold. I think we're all on the same team, really. I think the gold bugs and the Bitcoin bugs, we're one and the same. And I don't know why there's such a, a, yeah. a heated debate between the two. I just see them serving different purposes in my portfolio. 
See, I like to set up my portfolio in what I call a 10-80-10. So 10% insurance, 10% investments, which I define as things that pay me to own them. And then 10% speculative assets, which I see some asymmetry and some good upside. So for me, the 10% insurance That's 30%. Is just you said 10, 80, 10, and then you said 10% this, 10% this, and 10% that. I'm guessing you're 80% investments and not 10% investments. Yeah. So I, so I sorry, if I misspoke there. So so 10% would be insurance. 10, 80% <laughs> would be uh, would be investments. And 10% would be speculation. You're like fucking so Herman 10- Cain with the 999 program, you know, rest in peace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 9%, 9%, 9%. What do you get? 100%. It's, it's, yeah, there you go. it's easy to remember. So uh, anyway, so the, the 10% physical gold, that's insurance. That's just insurance. I'm not going to, you're not uh, getting rich on that. You're just, you're maintaining your purchasing power. Then the 80% dividend paying stocks, you know, real estate stuff that pays you. Around. But the 10% and you mix it up there. And I think that Bitcoin really serves a, a great role in that 10% of your portfolio that's allocated to a, a speculative asset. I think uranium is another example of that. But um, see, so I, I think you, you've got to understand what purpose the asset is serving in your overall portfolio construction. And that's where I think Bitcoin definitely makes sense long term. That said, I'm not a buyer at 40,000. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought where the line in the sand is where I'd come in and buy more. But I, I probably wouldn't buy more. I'm happy just holding what I already own. And if I miss out, I miss out. I don't care because it's not about you know any one particular investment. It's about your strategy and having a, a mathematical edge long term. And I think if I maintain my strategy, then over the long term, I'll have a mathematical edge and I'll come out a winner. So I'm fine you know, sitting on the sidelines and just seeing what happens. I think it's very interesting what's happening in the price. But I just don't like buying things Chris, when I see everybody piling into them, when I see my right. housekeeper wanting to buy them, when I see the 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 stimmy girl on TikTok talking about how you're going to get rich buying it. I mean, that is you want to talk about the shoe shine boy. Not only that, but you see it advertised just on CNBC nonstop. You see, um, I think there's a lot that's going on at Grayscale that's kind of behind the scenes and maybe uh, less than than ethical. But uh, so anyway, that's my I think you get my point there. Just uh, short term, I'm a little hesitant, not a buyer, but long term, uh, definitely think it's a great speculation. Well, what do you see as uh, like, what do you see as a negative catalyst for it? Well, I think that the I think obviously governments make it illegal. So, and I know the Bitcoin guys are going to say, you can't ban it. You can't ban Bitcoin. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But what the government can do is they can come in and say, if you transact in Bitcoin, it's uh, 15 years in prison. And so how many And that's it. It's over right there. If that happens, if that's happening, if that happens, the bottom falls out. Yeah, I don't know that it's over because I, I do agree with, with my buddy Preston Pish that there would be another country or several countries that would say, fine, if the U.S. bans Bitcoin, we'll take it. We'll right. take all your capital. And those people most likely, or some of them, would go over to that that other country and then kind of build the network from there. And uh, But 
I, I don't know how many people that are that have a wife and kids, their kids are in private school, right. or driving around the Range Rover, they've got a membership at the local golf course. How many of those people, if the United States government makes it illegal to own Bitcoin with a, a penalty of, let's say, 10 or 15 years, is going to get so pissed off that they look over at their wife and say, honey, let's pack everything up. We're going to Cuba. Yeah, we're going to Malta. Or, honey, right. let's, yeah, exactly. We're going to Malta. Or we're going to XYZ country, even Colombia. So it's probably not going to happen. So I totally agree that there would be a small percentage. Well, now, what that would do to the price, I have absolutely no idea. That There's an argument both ways. But, but the whole point here is that there are so many cross currents involved long term with Bitcoin, it's impossible to know the probabilities. Right. You just can't. And I, I totally understand that it's about math and it's about the havings and this and that. But you, you from a demand side, you, you really can't figure out everything that's involved. Now, with the price, I think it's a lot easier to figure that out. But whether Bitcoin's going to be banned or whether it's going to be global money, I think there's there's just it's impossible to know for sure. And, and so when you start thinking about it in terms of global money, what most people don't understand, especially kind of the Bitcoin fanatics, is in order to have global money, you would really need something where the money supply can expand with the demand for productive loans. And it goes back to kind of a history lesson when you look at the way banking evolved in the United States. And most people don't know this, but you know, so you start with the full reserve banking. So basically I take my gold coin, Chris, you own, you're a goldsmith. And I say, Hey Chris, here's my gold bar, hang on to it. And then you give me an IOU and then I can kind of give that IOU to someone else because they know that they can come down to Chris's shop and, and get their gold bar. Or then maybe you take that gold bar and, and you lend it to someone else, or maybe you, you write an IOU to, to you know, that, that person trades, right? You lend them, you create an IOU. So it, it's, that's kind of the, the basics of, of how banking started. Well, then from that, you, you move to what we called free banking. And that's what we had in the United States in the early 1800s prior to the Civil War. And free banking didn't imply that there were just no charges. It meant that the government was not involved in any way, shape, or form. So that means that you would take your gold bar, give it to the bank, and then they would give you um, you know, a time deposit or whatever. And then they would take and they would issue IOUs to other people, create loans and when I talk about IOUs, I'm just talking about currency units that they would give to people backed up by your gold, right? So that was when we you, you have fractional reserve banking, okay? But the, the, the banks themselves would issue their own currencies, see? So uh, you had this fractional reserve banking system that sprung up, which is another way of saying that the quantity of money expanded with the demand for productive loans okay we had a, a, an elastic money supply but that sprung up as a result of the free market i think a lot of people in the austrian school think that um, fractional reserve banking was something that we got because of the government or because of the federal reserve it's not true it's not true that was a result of the free market doing what it does well 
And so my point is, if we had Bitcoin as global money, sure, I think, yeah, it would start off as this system that uh, that was full reserve. But eventually, eventually, it most likely would go into this system that was fractional reserve because people want to make a return on their Bitcoin. And even if it's not with a bank, it would be with, let's say, a private equity fund or someone who manages Bitcoin that can give you a return on it. And they're going to lend it out. And they're going to be incentivized to create IOUs based on the Bitcoin <laughs> where you've got kind of uh, this this money supply increasing. So you see my point there is that um, th- the fact that Bitcoin is scarce is one uh, headwind in order for it to become a global currency because the free market is going to want some type of uh, money, let's say, that that can expand with demand, right? And um, it, it's, it, you can't just subdivide it. That, that's another argument where they say, well, the, you know, Bitcoin is almost infinitely divisible. And I, I get that argument, but y- y- that takes a long time for deflation to play out. That's like going down to the bank and asking for a loan for $100,000 and then saying, well, we can't give you the $100,000, but we can give you 100,000 dimes. <laughs> well, okay, that doesn't really, that doesn't do me too much good. You know, you got to wait till the price of that house comes down with productive deflation until there's enough money supply for that loan if you're on a system of full reserve. And then lastly, um, what a lot of gold people don't understand, a lot of Bitcoin don't understand, is that the money supply, even with a fixed system, locally can increase significantly, creating consumer price inflation. And so what happens is uh, it goes back to uh, David Hume, and who was a buddy with uh, Adam Smith. And he had this theory where uh, if you run a trade deficit, as an example, as a country, you know, you've got more of your gold, let's say we're on a gold standard, you have your gold going to another country. So therefore, their gold supply increases. In other words, their money supply increases. Okay, well, that creates more money supply, meaning more money chasing the same amount of goods and services. So you'd have price inflation. Okay, and that would kind of equal out where their prices increase. And that makes their exports less attractive. So that that other country then their uh, exports would become more attractive, become, they're cheaper, and therefore you'd have the gold kind of going back and forth, right? But so although you have a fixed supply of gold, one country would be getting more gold, the other country would be getting less gold. Therefore, the country that was getting more gold, or in other words, Bitcoin, uh, would see potentially price inflation because although it is a scarce asset, the local money supply would be increasing significantly. So... You see, my, the whole takeaway here is that the, the future of the, the Bitcoin network, and I like to think of money as, as a network, whether it's the digital yuan, the dollar, the future digital dollar, uh, Bitcoin, the, the future is completely unknown. And uh, I don't even think that we can determine probabilities within reason, the future meaning the next 10, 20 years. Uh, but now the next five years, do I think that um, – the price of Bitcoin can get to $100,000 or maybe beyond. I think the probabilities are much higher, and I think the probabilities are much more knowable, if that makes sense. 
It does, yeah. I think that, um, just to go back to what I was saying earlier when I said, oh, that's it, the bottom falls out, I, I thought that you were talking about that type of regulation on a global scale and not just uh, in the U.S. And so I agree with you uh, about your point that, hey, if it's just the U.S. that bans it, there will be, you know, the Cayman Islands will adopt it or, you know, one of these uh, one of these tax havens or something, and it'll become, uh, you know, an asset that, that's accepted in places like that. But, that, you know, that does... That the question of how much that will do for it remains up in the air, and I'll concede that it may not ever go to zero. There, there may always be some demand for it. Um, there may be enormous price fluctuations to the downside, which in essence uh, would equate to it going to zero for people that are buying it today. It, that may or may not happen. Um, so I'll agree with you there that that there may always be a demand for it, and it is like a digital cockroach, which I know. People say that's part of its appeal, and I agree with that. And I also agree that the problems that it seeks to solve are legitimate problems. And so the Bitcoin and the gold people being on the same page, I think, uh, is a wonderful thing. Uh, I agree with you, too, that the, the, the hatred and the, you know, the kind of vitriol that comes from the Bitcoin people to the gold people is mystifying to me. You know, I've been a short seller for years. It reminds me a lot of when you know we short something based on facts and we present those facts to the public and shareholders refuse to see the facts and instead just kind of come after you and it reminds me a little bit uh of that but but i will concede uh all of your points make sense to me and to be fair too i want to ask you like what do you think what do you think a best case scenario for bitcoin is well best case scenario is that it's global money and so it, and talk it, about and how, how would that happen? What would that adoption look like? It would see. I don't know. And I, I'm trying to think through what that would mean from obviously higher sort of the price. Uh, I don't know if that would mean a million. I would have to really think that through to figure out what the global supply of dollars are right now and try to figure out some sort of equation to where that would bring the price of an individual Bitcoin, um, assuming that we needed that many, um, you know, units of a, a subdivided Bitcoin to uh, to work as uh, demand, you know, um, that that's a very complex question. But I see because also what you're talking about there, Chris, is what does the price of Bitcoin do if we turn it into a fractional reserve system? See, because I don't know that you can have a global money without it being fractional reserve. I think you could, but the the economic devastation that would create would be mind-boggling. Um, because you would have some countries that would have a lot of it. Other countries wouldn't have any. They could subdivide it. Um, but you're just talking the, the, the transfer into that system, I think, would create a lot of economic devastation that, that no one wants. So I think that you'd have to have a fractional reserve. So if you've got a bunch of IOUs being created, but let's, it doesn't have to be by a banking system. It can be, you know, a decentralized thing. Then, then what does that do to the price of the individual Bitcoin? I, who knows? It goes back to the question of how many IOUs are being created. Right. And um, <clears throat> the, it's totally, totally unknowable. But I think the the, the price, 
I just have to do the math on how many trillions of dollars are out there in circulation. Say that's 80% of uh, global transactions are, are done in dollars and then just kind of reverse engineer it to see uh, what the price of Bitcoin would have to be. It's the exact same formula you would use to figure out how uh, what the price of gold would need to be per ounce to back up the 100% of the dollars. Well, the other thing that strikes me, I mean, the thing that really stops me in my tracks with Bitcoin is, is the government going to let something get to, is any government going to let something get to a, you know, trillion dollar or two trillion dollar market cap without having their hand in it in some way? And I, I don't yeah. know if it's making it illegal because they may not make it illegal, but they may regulate the fuck out of it, too. And then what happens? Like, And that's another wild card, like you said. If the government bans it, there's a case for the price going up if the government bans it, right? This is exactly what we'd be saying, you know? There's a, you're outside the system now, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and so there's so, like you said earlier, there's so many unknowns and there's so many cross currents. And it's just by virtue of the fact that you have all these unknown variables and it in and of itself is an asset class that, you know, is so, so, so brand new, especially when compared to something like gold, that that is what gives me pause and causes me to be, uh, you know, as skeptical as I possibly can be about it. And it's not, I'm not an anti-Bitcoin crowd. I Like I said, I share many of the ideals of the Bitcoin crowd, but uh, I don't know that. And that, that big one is, hey, how are you going to, how are you going to create a trillion or $2 trillion market cap in anything that the government's not going to have some say in or have its hand in or say, hey, you can't do this. All this money's got to go into the U.S. capital markets or into the global capital markets. Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to this Einstein quote that I tweeted the other day. When we're talking about the long term for Bitcoin or for, for any uh, money, because, uh, it, it, again, there's so many cross currents. And this quote from uh, Einstein was, the more knowledge someone has, the lesser the ego. The lesser the knowledge, the more the ego. So if you're one of these people, and I don't care whether you're a gold bug or a Bitcoin bug, if you come out there and say definitively, 100% that in 20 years, Bitcoin will be the global money, or definitively in, uh, in 20 years, all uh, money will be backed by gold, that that's ego that's not knowledge and um it's just i think if we can understand that and uh it, it'll help us position our portfolio a lot better uh understanding that portfolio construction is really key meaning that um don't take 100 percent of your net worth lever up right. and buy bitcoin and don't do this don't do that with gold <laughs> i mean it's just um, I see people doing that nonstop. I, I did a podcast with a guy the other day, great guy, but um, he was just arguing. Well, hey, if 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 Bitcoin's going to a hundred thousand, like you you say that it that it could, well then why wouldn't I just go out and max out all my credit cards and buy Bitcoin? And I'm like, it, it's 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 so insane. <laughs> like where do I go with that? Like I don't even know how to debate this uh it's just such a crazy idea but but he was serious he's like that's it's i bitcoin's going to 100 grand so why would i just not yeah, can't borrow lose. against my house and 
yeah, I mean, why? It just makes sense. It makes sense. And so, but my point there, and we talk about this in um, in oh, we'll pitch plug Rebel Capital's program, but we talk about this in uh, in pro with uh, with Lynn Alden. I think I'm sure most people know Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. That I think the best thing people can do for their financial future is to understand that it's not just about the asset you're buying, but it's about your entire portfolio. And the important component of your portfolio is to set it up in a way that you can handle it emotionally. Most people never think about that. See, they, they just say, oh, what do I think is going up in price and I'll buy that. Right. They, they don't think about the emotional component of your portfolio going down by 50% and then you making the smart decision or the, the, the decision that's required to have a mathematical edge long term or your portfolio tripling. Now what do you do? Do you sell? Do you, do you buy more? I mean, copper is a great example of that. And we see that copper, you know, we're talking about inflation. Copper has gone up just dramatically since March. So now it's kind of in this zone. I mean, you, you've made a ton of money. Do you buy it or do, 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 you, do you sell it now and cash in or do you, you buy more? You know, it's just, and I think if you have too much of your portfolio in one asset to the point where you're on your phone checking the price every five minutes, eventually, because we're all emotional creatures, you're gonna make the wrong decision. And and that's that's not an edge. It goes back to my favorite investor of all time, Jim Rogers. And I remember the story, and I, I've, I'll remember this till the day I die. The story he told about uh, traveling through Africa on his, I can't remember if it was on his motorcycle or his Mercedes. He did two trips there. And he went to this country, and he really liked what was going on. So he figured out a way. I guess there was a little local broker there. There was only maybe... 10 stocks on their exchange, but he told the broker to set up an account and I just want to buy, kind of spread out the money equally between all 10 of these, of these companies. And the broker said to him, well, Mr. Rogers, do, where do you want me to send your monthly statement? And Jim said, oh, no, 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 no. Never, ever send me a statement. <laughs> And the guy said, what? What are you talking about? He says, whatever you do, don't send me a statement. Yep. And he said, why? He said, because I don't want to know what the price is doing because then I'll be tempted to either buy or to, to sell or buy more. Right. I'll be tempted to make a bad decision is basically what he was saying. And there's something, I don't, there's something to really be said for that too, George, because some of the best investments I've had are ones I mean back in the day when I like literally couldn't leave the desk during the day it's certainly not like that anymore uh you know were things where I would get up for an hour because the water heater broke and I was dealing with that and then I come back upstairs and I see something's way past the price where I would have sold it and I'm like holy shit you know I made a 5x instead of a 3x or um you know and certainly I think that having that peace of mind now to be able to get up from the desk during the day and shit go get lunch and you know take the day off and go for a walk and you know or go for a week go on vacation and you know not not feel like you gotta look at everything i got things that expire tomorrow and i'm so heavy in something whatever 
that peace of mind that comes back like a uh, you know like a feedback loop and just contributes to better decisions going forward. That's a very rewarding peace of mind, not just for your portfolio and monetarily, but also for your future decision making. Yeah, and it goes back to diversification, buying things when they're cheap and just selling them when they're expensive. And, uh, you know, another story about that, I bought a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I bought some Cypress shares back when they did their bail-in. I don't know if you remember that. Back in, uh, was that 2013 or so? Okay. Remember when they, when they did the bank bail-ins and their stock market went down by 99%? I went in there and I set up a, a brokerage account and I, I bought the, the little local hotel chain, which at the time was like 10 cents a share. Right. And it was paying a one cent dividend. <laughs> so a, it's a monster. It's a monster dividend, yeah. <laughs> 10% dividend, that's right. But I, I bought, it for, for me, what wasn't a large amount, but uh, it, it, was, it was a significant amount of money. You know, it was thousands of dollars. And uh, I just, but it wasn't enough of my overall net worth to where I even worried about the price. Right, right. I just, I had an investment thesis just like Jim Rogers. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy this because I think in five years or whatever, it's going to do well and I'm going to make a good return. So I bought it and then I just, inadvertently, I wasn't trying to be like Jim Rogers, but inadvertently it worked out that way where I just basically forgot about it. And like a year ago, I was doing a video and I wanted to use that uh, purchase as an example, but I hadn't seen the price, Chris, in, in literally years. I had no clue what it was. I, I didn't even know how to access my account. So fortunately, I found the, the broker's email address and I emailed him. I said, how do I even get my account? I want to look to see if there's even any money left. I didn't look, for all I knew, it went to zero. And I looked, and sure enough, that and I don't know what it is today, but that ten cent stock was now like eighty eight cents. But what was incredible is they increased their dividend <laughs> to to the point where I was getting paid on my cost basis. I was getting paid like a fifty percent dividend yield, right? Oh, and I've been awesome. paid, yeah, and I've been paid this whole time. And it goes back to your point: if that would have been a hundred percent of my portfolio. And I would have been just, and that was my, that was my future. That was my financial future. You know, I would have been checking that every single day. I probably would have sold at uh, 20 cents. Right. I probably would have right. sold when yep. it doubled or tripled. And instead, because it was a diversified part of my portfolio and I had my portfolio set up to where I removed emotion from the equation, I was able to get a, uh, not a, almost a 10 bagger, let's call it. George, you mentioned uh, Rebel Capitalist Pro before, and I want to talk about it. I want to say a couple of things about it. The first is, um, you know, I don't have a product. I don't sell a product or a service, um, but I do have people that support the podcast. And uh, I like to make sure that the people who support the podcast and who want me to shout out their products or their services as a result of that are people that I know and people that are honest and people that are trustworthy. And, uh, and so over the last, I don't know, probably six weeks, eight weeks, uh, I've been getting inundated with requests from people that want to either sponsor the podcast or they want to buy appearances on the podcast 
or, you know, they just want to shovel money to me and they want me to do something for them. (laughs) And and 99% of the times it's things that I don't want to do. And so I was driving a couple of days ago thinking about this and, uh, and I have, uh, some supporters that have dropped off over uh, 2020, which is fine because uh, I understand it was a tough year for everybody. And so I was entertaining the idea of, you know, well, which of these services do I have to look at? Do I have to fucking vet? I mean, I got to talk to these people. I got to figure out what their deal is and start sorting through this stuff to kind of figure out maybe who would be the person uh, on deck to do that. And I know we had talked last week about coming on the podcast at some point this month. And, uh, and I was just watching one of your videos and in the middle of the video, you interrupt and you're like, how about rebel capitalist pro? And, uh, (laughs) and that echoed in my head while I was driving. And I was like, fucking how about rebel capitalist pro? Like I know George Gammon. I trust George Gammon. I like George Gammon. Honestly, I think he's a great person i think he's got his head screwed on straight obviously you don't know everything in the world and neither do i but i think you come by it honestly and that's really what i like about you and you're you're somebody whose channel you know i look at all the time and since i actually been checking out rebel capitalist pro here for the last couple of days um i can tell already it's it's a resource that i'm going to be looking at and so i called you up and i said george why don't you become a supporter of the qtr podcast um and why doesn't, you know, Rebel Capitalist Pro become a supporter? And we can talk about it on the next podcast because I find it interesting and I love your content. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we know each other. I, I trust you implicitly. I trust you as a business person. I trust you as a as a person that wants to do the right thing. Um, and I tried to, you know, lay out maybe what I had in mind and you were already like, yeah, let's do it, you know? So... Well, I, was- I think what was funny is you, you sent me, like three or four texts, you know, kind of outlining what would be done. We could do this and this and this and this. And, you know, maybe if you're interested, maybe we could do this. And I remember I just texted you one word done. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, do you want to see the podcast stats? You know, do you want to see like how many listeners I have and whatever? You're like, no, no, I don't care. You know, don't worry about it, whatever. So yeah, I want to do a couple of things. The first is I want to talk about it a, because um, I want to give you a second to tell my listeners about it and because I like you and I know that they like you. And so it'd be interesting, I think, to them. Um, and B, because uh, I just started checking it out as well. And uh, and I dig so far, I've only looked through the forums, which are way more comprehensive than I thought that they would be. And the platform itself, by the way, you obviously shelled out some money for the for the platform because it feels like a real professional community platform, uh, especially in the forum area. So I thought, like, let's take a couple minutes and just talk about it. This isn't an advertisement and it's not a pitch or any kind of bullshit like that, but it's uh, it's a buddy of mine who I genuinely respect and, and I think it'd be interesting to hear about it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll make it quick because I'm, I'm sure uh, uh, people don't want uh, or would prefer the elevator pitch here. But uh, basically, All right, time's Rebel up. Capitalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Basically, I'm the amateur. I, I want to be very clear. I'm I'm merely an amateur in this macro space. I, I'm a hobbyist. But uh, what I'm smart enough to do is surround myself with people who know a hell of a lot more than I do. And so the pros in Rebel Capitalist Pro is a, a gal by the name of Lynn Alden, 
And if for your viewers, if, if you don't know who Lynn Alden is, trust me, you, you, you need to follow her on Twitter immediately, if not sooner. And uh, she is a, a superstar in this business. And I think personally that Lynn Alden in the future, in the next three, five years, is going to be the one of the prominent figures in all of investing in macroeconomics. I think you're going to see her on Bloomberg. You're going to see her on CNBC. She is going to be one of the go-to people. She's going to be the Kyle Bass, right? She's going to be the Jim Chanos, the Stan Druckenmiller. She's going to be at that level in the future. And so I was fortunate enough to somehow convince her to partner with a an idiot like myself <laughs> in, this, in this rebel capitalist pro <laughs> who has who also, has partnered with an idiot like myself by the way <laughs> i'm two yeah. derivatives off the idiot chain <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly and then uh also chris mcintosh who is just a fantastic investor hedge fund manager and what's great about chris is not only is he brilliant but he's been in the trenches. He gets it. He's he's made the trades. He's been there. He's he's managed the you know the hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's he's got the, the intestinal fortitude, let's say, and the experience to know uh, how to invest, when to buy, when to sell, and all of the emotional components that we were talking about in the past. He, he's. He's had the experience to be able to control that and help people uh, understand and to uh, take and manage their portfolios and construct their portfolios in a more positive way long term. And so what it is, it's an online forum where there's threads, people can ask questions, and it's a community. Uh, now I've got about five or 600 people in there that are going back and forth constantly, of very like-minded individuals. They're people who... I think, for the most part, value uh, libertarian ideals. Uh, they value Austrian economics, and they're just trying to figure out the world around them and make money uh, with all of the central bank insanity and big governments that we see today. It's kind of like a Doug Casey uh, definition of a speculator. That's someone who is trying to profit on the insanity and the distortions of government. And so uh, it's the forums, and then we do live stream Q&As uh, with myself, with Lynn, and with Chris McIntosh for the members where they just ask us questions directly. And then it's got all of Lynn's research. So she's got a professional research product that comes out biweekly. That's included in the forum. And then Chris has a research product that comes out weekly, and that's included in the forum as well. And we're right now we're really talking about uh, commodities uh, the, and just things that are cheap, uh, things that are expensive, and uh, it's kind of the, the the focus of our conversation seems to be about commodities and overseas stocks, um, banks, uh, oil producers. Uh, we're very bullish on Russia right now, and um, that's. That's what you get. So, <laughs> yeah, I think of it as I think of your platform as just like one iteration, well, several iterations more serious than my own. I mean, my platform, I, you know, I talk about macro and we talk about finance, but we talk about other stuff too. And 
Um, you know, my podcast is kind of a mixed bag and a wild card. And I, I always just kind of thought of your, your videos, even the ones that are free, but your product as well is like, yeah, you know, maybe you listen and you want to kind of dig just a couple iterations <clears throat> deeper on some of the things that obviously me and you talk about, but things that I talk about with other people, because admittedly, I do keep things on a very surface level a lot of the time, either because I'm too lazy to do the research myself, or I don't have time to do the research myself. Um, and so I think that, um, that that was the first thing I said to you when we talked this weekend. I said, I think the, the cross-section of my listeners that are interested in um, economics and that are investors, I think would be a natural fit for your product and just for your station and everything in general, even your, even your free YouTube channel. Um, and so what we're going to do is, um, we're going to set up something where if you're, you know, podcast listener of mine, uh, and I'll put this link in the podcast description today, people can, uh, make their way over to your platform and, uh, there'll be, there'll be certain perks for QTR listeners that go over there. Um, well, right now, yeah, right now we've got for everyone we've got a uh, a one dollar trial for a week. So if you just go to georgegammon.com forward slash qtr and you 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 click on one of the, the the programs there, you can try it out for a week for a dollar. Cool, yeah, and I'll put that link in my podcast description um, so people can check it out there. And as always, regardless of whether or not you support the podcast. Um, you know, I love having you on. I love talking to you. I always recommend people follow you on Twitter, follow you on YouTube. I always tell you how valuable I think your um, YouTube channel is and how valuable I think your information is. And I just couldn't be happier for your success, dude. I just, you're, you're a stand-up guy, you're a person of integrity, and uh, and I appreciate it very much. And I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with me today, George. Well, thank you for the kind words. And I really enjoy any opportunity I get to chat and uh, for everyone listening right now, I'm trying to convince Chris to come to my, my birthday <laughs> party at the end of this month, January 30th. And so uh, hit him up on Twitter and kind of prod him a little bit. Make sure that he gets here. Did I sound so I like I needed have a, to... have a stiff drink with Chris Irons. Did I sound like I needed convincing, though, when we were talking about it? You're saying you're trying to convince me. I think my text to you in all caps was, I need to get the fuck out of the house! <laughs> you weren't exactly we're all... twisting my arm, dude. Yeah, we're all feeling that way right now. Yeah, we're all feeling that way. So it, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. I don't want to go into too much detail there but i rented a a venue here uh, locally in old town scottsdale it's, we're gonna have some live music and a wine bar and since i rented the entire venue they're allowing us to go in there with the option of not wearing masks or anything so hopefully uh, for the people who show up and Ooh, you're attend, a very bad man you very very yeah, bad man no, just hopefully just for one night we'll be able to go back to some normalcy some freedom and get some of that human interaction that we were talking about earlier and actually see people smile. Awesome. George Gammon, thank you so much, my brother. It's georgegammon.com forward slash QTR. I will put that link in my podcast description. I will also put your uh, Twitter uh, handle in my podcast description. And uh, any questions, hit me up or hit George up. And if you need some, you have some kind of extenuating circumstances, whatever, you want to try some shit out in a certain way, George will work with you. Just get in touch with him or get in touch with one of his staff. Tell him I sent you. We'll make sure you get taken care of. Thank you very much, George. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. That was the one, the only... 
George Gammon. Super dope to have the man on. And actually very happy, not only to have him supporting the podcast, because obviously that's great, but also too, man, it saves me a lot of fucking aggravation and headache and work, you know, calling people back. Well, what do you think about this? Well, could I try the product first? Could I do this, that, whatever? It's George Gammon. I know him. I like him. He's smart. You're smart. I love everybody. Hopefully you hit your three drink minimum. I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.